0: Now, on this Invest Talk podcast, Justin Klein listens to your questions.
1: What does it mean when a company's share price falls to cheap prices and executive insiders don't buy more? My question is, how much of your
0: portfolio should you put into like ETFs and mutual funds? I had a question about Dutch Bros. It's going to
2: be a new IPO.
0: And provides unbiased answers.
2: I think the bet on the raw materials that go into electric cars are going to be far better than the electric car producers.
0: Invest Talk across America and around the world. Your participation makes it unique. 88899 chart
3: This podcast is produced by KPP Financial. Steve Peasley, President, KPP Financial. Independent thinking, shared success. And now today's podcast.
2: Good afternoon fellow investors and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our February 10th, 2022 edition of Invest Talk. I am Justin Klein and I'm excited to be here this hour to answer your finance and investment questions. And today was another interesting day in the markets. You had the CPI print which we're going to talk about later in the show as well as a lot of market volatility uh, both uh in the after hours, as well as intraday. And this more volatile, unpredictable time that we're witnessing means that you have to be prepared for the cycles changing. And that can be difficult to, uh, to, to, to navigate a market where certain companies that you uh, aren't as familiar with, aren't, uh, don't naturally have an affinity towards, uh, those ones are doing better. And those companies that maybe are more exciting, more interesting, not doing as hot. And so this is the nature of being an investor, though. It's not about what is interesting or cool or fun. It's about what makes sense and what makes money. It's why you're here. It's why you're listening to the show, because you want to be better at making good investment decisions. I also want to help you make better savings decisions, better, better spending decisions, but at the end of the day this is invest talk but my goal is to give you the tools to make the right money decisions in general each and every day and hopefully during this hour and every hour that you listen to invest talk we can give you another tool in your tool belt to pull out and make use to make good money decisions so of course i'm here to answer your specific investment and money related questions. And you can reach out to me right now during our live stream program from four to five Pacific time. Or if you're listening after hours, no big deal, you can leave a message on our best talk voice bank. And either way, the number never changes 8899 chart. And when you call and I answer your questions, I'm here to just give you the facts as I see them in front of me using 20 plus years of investment experience, as well as tons of data at my fingertips right here. So whether I'm talking about the market as a whole, uh, I'm talking about a particular strategy, a sector, whatever it is, I'm here to present it all without bias. So we're going to head to our first listener question. Now we're going to talk to Mac in Cabo San Lucas. In fact, I'll be there in a couple of weeks, but he wants to talk about BG. How's it going, Mac?
0: It's going great. I just want to thank you. I've been listening to Invest Talk. I used to listen to your grandfather back on uh, Money Radio.
2: And oh, wow, I just that's a really that's a throwback. It. A lot of people don't know that uh, we have a, we have a lot of newer podcast listeners, and they don't know that Invest Talk has been around since the '90s. Yeah, with my grandfather, uh, Gerald Klein. And uh, yeah, thanks for for listening, and, and glad you got to get some of his wisdom, because he's certainly the basis of uh, of, of what I learned, and uh, that was at a very young age, in high school and beyond, so uh, thanks for, for tuning yep. in. Now you're looking at Bungie, uh, do you own it, or are looking to buy it?
0: Yes, I own it, I bought it uh, back in early November, I remember speaking to you about it then, and you it had made a run, and you said, if I my memory's correct, you said it could keep going if uh, it could hold its margins. I thought it looked like it was going to break out. I was going to buy a little bit more, but I saw it pulled way back. I want to see what you think of it at this level.
2: Well, it it is... Starting to hesitate here. Uh, and the technicals are starting to weaken just a bit. So I do think it's a bit overbought. And so I wouldn't be aggressively buying it now. But uh, after we talked last time, it did pull back from a high of around $96 per share, and then had a dip down to about 85 kind of fell with the, the whole commodity space as a whole. But as you know, commodities uh, quickly turned back up as well as, as Bungie. And I think commodities are going to continue to do well. So, you know, our fair value is a little bit lower than here, right around $85 per share. Now it's at 99. So I do think it's, it's a little bit overvalued, but I like the space. I like what you're looking at. And uh, for everyone out there, Bungie uh, sells... Uh, grains, oil seeds, it uh, produces fertilizers, uh, it basically supplies the agricultural market, and that market, uh, the prices in those markets are, are continuing to go up, and that means the demand for Bungie's products are going up as well. So I like the business. I'd be a little patient here because I do think you're going to pull back. Earnings this year are expected to drop 22% from almost $13 in 2021 down to about $10 and $9.25 next year. So certainly th- that, that growth of, of earnings is, is slowing, but still, if it makes $9 next year, it's turning 11 times multiple. And I still think that's relatively, uh, that, that's still fine. So it you know it is a little bit overvalued, like I said, right now. I would like to buy it closer to $80, $85 per share. And that's when I would be picking it up. Thanks for the call, Mac. Let's go to Robert in Pleasanton, looking at STOR, which is a REIT that owns commercial real estate in 49 different states. Are you? Do you own it or looking to buy it? I'm thinking about buying it. I see
0: that it's had a bit of a pullback recently. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on it.
2: Well, the issue with store is – uh, the symbol is S-T-O-R, but it's a S-T-O-R-E, capital. And what they do is they own a very diverse set of commercial real estate properties, restaurants, movie theaters, health clubs, Early childhood education centers, so preschools. Think of it. Furniture stores, and the, most of its portfolio is are restaurants and industrial locations. It has properties in Texas, Illinois, and Georgia. Those make up a large amount of their uh, investments and in their in their properties, which I think are actually solid states to be to be invested in uh, more broadly. The issue here once again is that they are in the commercial real estate market. And as I said before, anything office related is going to struggle, but they've, uh, they've been able to maintain their, their cash flows and their margins. Let me look at their, they are issuing some shares. Their long-term profitability is not fantastic, but they've con- continued to increase their funds from operation, which I, I do like. Um, I'm kind of so-so on this, and, and mainly it has to do with the chart. The chart is is pretty weak here. It's trading well below its 200-day moving average, and it's just consolidating in an a embarrassed manner. And it's underperforming the REIT sector as a whole, and it's really been underperforming it since, let's see, yeah, since November 2019. And I think that's my issue uh, is it's just – I, I rather own different types of REITs than this, and the technicals look pretty bad. So I'm passing on STOR. Now we're moving into a quick break, but I'm here. I'm ready to answer your investment and finance questions on Invest Talk at eight 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 ninety nine chart.
0: What is a charitable remainder trust, a CRT? What are the biggest downsides or drawbacks to a CRT? Learn the answers to these questions and many more in a special interview this Thursday, February 10th on Invest Talk.
2: Let's go to Carl in Oceanside and let's we'll talk about Beyond Meat. Uh,
4: at the grocery store, I saw their products, their mm. vegan products. They're expensive as the real thing. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, do they make money? At one time, the stock was at about 200, Mm -hmm. and now they're around 61
2: uh the simple answer is no they don't make money and it's a horrible business even though revenue growth has been has been uh, going up they they they're doing it by just simply issuing more shares their 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 shareholders are financing this their money losing operation and uh, it's a fantastic short uh, i think i think it's a terrible business and a fantastic short so uh, i would definitely not be buying beyond and probably would continue to, uh, to short it and they're issuing more and more shares. So yeah, just cause you see it in the store, doesn't mean that it's actually good. I, I kind of look at uh, thanks for the call, Carl. Now I, I like, I like to think of these kind of story stocks or companies that have good brand recognition, but bad businesses. It's kind of like a, a, a politician, you know there's a lot of politicians with good brand recognition and most people don't look under the hood and 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 and, and see the uh, see the way they've sold their soul in order to get the the brand the brand recognition and the the, the publicity and they're good at those type of things but they're not good at the governing part right and that's so much the case with so many of our politicians is just that they are good at getting out there and speaking and they may speak well and they they have good PR and a good team uh behind them but underneath the surface it took a lot of kind of selling their soul to get there and i think that's what's happening in a lot of these 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 companies like beyond meats Good brand recognition, but that's only one part of a a, a business is brand recognition. There's also operations and and actually running a real business that can produce positive earnings, positive cash flow. And Beyond Meat is so far away from that. It's appalling. And there are a lot of companies in the market like that. Uh, Just look at Peloton. Peloton Great brand recognition, but never in in literally the best environment they could ever ask for where people are sitting at home wanting to work out. Gyms were closed, and they still couldn't make money in that environment. And now you see what happened to the stock. Uh, great brand recognition, absolutely appalling business. And there's just a lot of businesses like that in the marketplace today. Now, my f- focus point today is based on the story behind this headline. The supply chain should benefit as chip makers crank up spending and this is something i've been talking about to some some clients but uh, probably not enough on air but i really want to highlight it and that is that semiconductor con- companies around the world are ramping up their capex in january T- tsmc taiwan semiconductor said it would grow its capex by 47% this year up to four, from uh, between 40 and 44 billion that's up from 30 billion last year. And they're looking to build more factories in Phoenix, uh, Arizona, as well as Japan. And you have Intel also investing $20 billion in Arizona, Samsung, they're investing big money into their chip business as well. And in total, semiconductor semiconductor companies worldwide spent $146 billion in building new production capacity and on research last year. And TSMC, Samsung, and Intel, they accounted for 60% of that $146 billion. And you might say, oh, well, that's fantastic. They're going to do better. They're going to make more money. I have news for you. That's actually not typically a very good thing. Think of chips a lot like oil. Oil powers our industrial economy. And chips power our electronic economy they're very similar in that way in fact oil, a lot of oil goes into uh, uh, producing these chips but what happened remember the oil industry I'm talking I've talked about the oil industry as, as of late as ESG and a lot of government mandates that are limiting that supply response that typically brings a, a very creates a very volatile energy market right? Higher prices create more supply, which brings prices down, which erodes new supply, and it's a whole cycle. Well, the chip market is similar in that way. Yes, there's secular demand, but there's cyclical over and under supply dynamics. And there's no government telling the chip market to not produce more, like you're seeing in the oil industry right now. In fact, they're incentivizing them to do that. And so we're going to go. I think uh, probably the next nine to twelve months from an environment where chips are scarce, it's hard to get chips to oversupply, and that's going to build as all of these companies are putting through a lot of uh, their their new infrastructure projects and R and uh, D projects and building new capacity. And so that's why uh, uh, the ship market, when you're looking at the earnings, you have to understand you're entering an undersupplied market and we're entering over the next uh, probably year or so into an oversupplied market, most likely. Now, by the way, our special interview will be coming up in about 15 minutes. So make sure you check that out. We're moving into a break, though. So give Invest Talk a call at 888-99-CHART.
0: This is Invest Talk, and it sure seems like the new year is moving fast. Soon, we'll be halfway through the first quarter. Justin Klein and Steve Peasley are ready to answer your finance and investment questions. Call Invest Talk, 888 99 Chart.
4: Hey, Steve and Justin, my name is Miguel Lopez. I'm calling to ask about ticker symbol X, I believe it's USA Steel. I have a small position. And, uh, I was wondering if you think this is a good investment. I bought it when it was around $26. I saw it today it was around $18. I'm wondering if it's a good investment to buy right now or if you recommend something more of a, an ETF for steel. Thank you
2: and thanks for all you do. All right, I'll let you know a little secret here. Actually, U.S. Steel is uh, on our watch list now. Their margins have expanded dramatically. And one thing I like is there's potential changing regulation, uh, climate regulation, that is going to basically make it more expensive for countries like China to to produce steel in a much uh, worse way for the climate. So... That's one thing that's happened over the past couple of decades is there's less regulation in China. And so they're using coal and uh, just a, a dirtier way to produce steel, but it's a cheaper way. But it also produces more CO2. And uh, governments around the world are, are realizing this. And they're saying, well, if, for example, in America where the regulations on the environmental regulations are tighter, they are uh, th- they're losing out because they're not polluting the environment as much here in America, the producers of, of steel, and, but they're losing out to companies like, like our countries like China that are producing it in a, uh, in a dirtier way. And I think that has legs and will eventually uh, hurt the Chinese producers and help uh, producers like US steel. So I like that along with the, the tight supply uh, dynamics right now, which will probably ease but they're supposed, you know, they made thirteen dollars and forty-eight cents next year, trading at twenty-four dollars a share. They're supposed to make nine dollars and thirty-nine cents this year, two dollars and eighty-four cents next year. So certainly trending back towards their, uh, you know, pre-pandemic earnings levels, and that's the biggest worry. But analysts are upgrading both of those expectations for this year and next year, and their their balance sheet uh, is pretty clean because of the cash flow that they produced as of late. And if they just come close to what they're doing uh, now into the, the near future, they're going to be able to buy back shares and, and pay off all their debt. And they're just going to be able to uh, raise their dividend, do a lot of things that are shareholder friendly. So uh, my biggest issue, though, so far with U.S. deal is just the chart is – Certainly rebounded quickly. You said it was around $18, and that would have been a great place to buy if I heard this question then. Uh, now it's up uh, to about $23, but still making a series of lower highs and lower lows. So technically, it, it still is is in a downtrend, and that's my biggest issue here. It, but the fundamentals, to me, look pretty solid, even though their business is up and down. And this would be more of a near-term thing. It's not something you would buy and hold for 20 years because uh, the, there, there's a lot of cyclicality to their business. So uh, I like it for, you know, the medium term, but I do want to see the technicals improve just a bit. If it can get above its recent highs from December, which were right around $26, that would mean now making a higher high. And then I would be excited to get in because the fundamental backdrop is pretty solid and just waiting for those technicals to line up. Now let's take a look at the market today. I know we didn't really get to that early on and we had a, 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 Pretty solid down day Uh, after the the Fed announced not the Fed the government announced that interest or inflation came in at seven point five percent that was above the seven point three percent that the average economist was expecting so certainly a a relatively hot inflation number probably a lot of that had to do with Omicron and the fact that uh, that disrupted supply chains a bit more. But you're, you're going to start to see base effects kind of cool off as we go into the, the second, the second, uh, middle of the year. But this kind of spooked markets. And you saw the 10 year hit all the way up to close to 2.1%. That's where the major resistance is on the 10 year. And we hit a high today of, uh, 2.05% closed at 2.03%, but up 10 basis points. And you saw short term rates really rise again and, and more, more, uh, pricing in that the Fed will raise fifty basis points next month when they meet, and that 's certainly possible, but we 're also going to get another inflation figure before they meet as well uh, because uh, you 're going to get you 're going to get February in, and so that 's going to be a big factor so that was really what happened in the market today and what drove down, especially growth stocks. Uh, we talked about that. Higher interest rates are, are bad for growth stocks. You saw large cap growth down about 2% on average. Large cap value only down about 1%. Small cap value down less than 1%. So you saw uh, those higher rates, as you should expect, hurting the, the growth side of the market uh, more than the value side. <clears throat> but you you're likely to see a lot of volatility in here. Uh, I still think there's more upside for the market in the short short term, couple weeks or so, three weeks, uh, and, and then you get into a little more volatility as you go into the the earnings, or excuse me, the the Fed announcement, which is uh you know about a month away, and that's what I'll be watching. But uh, expect a lot of volatility. Don't think this is going to kind of um, settle out anytime soon. And volatility, remember, means both ways. to the upside and the downside. What was interesting today, it wasn't a huge break. Technically, there was no break to the downside. Uh, and it was kind of capitulation, I think, on yields as well. So uh, that's what happened in the market today. Also, after our interview, I do want to touch a bit on inflation and who's getting hit the worst, what parts of, the, of society are going to hit the worst. And then green energy, uh, talk a little bit more about that and how that can be detrimental to your portfolio when you invest in that space and at ESG. And then, lastly, private investment funds and some new rules coming down the pipe there. But on the next Invest Talk, the story: whether it's regretting spending too much or wishing you've done more research, a new survey found that 75% of home buyers during the pandemic have remorse. That story tomorrow. But for now, I'm Justin Klein and I'm ready to take your questions live at 99 chart. InvestTalk listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com/today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off now at rosettastone.com/today.
0: Each day, Invest Talk listeners submit their finance and investment questions via phone or email. Would you like your question to be put near the top of the list? Just take a minute or two to leave a review and rating for Invest Talk at iTunes. And be sure to include a brief question with your iTunes review comments.
2: Welcome back to Invest Talk. And today we are going to pivot over to a topic that isn't discussed much on the show, partly because it can be quite complex, but they shouldn't be ignored. And that is uh, the type of trust that you might set up uh, and the things that you can accomplish with a trust from uh, passing assets to next generation, to deferring taxes and various uh, goals that you can accomplish with various types of trusts. So Uh, We're going to bring on a couple of exciting guests, and I'm going to introduce them here in a minute, but I want to give you a little background on them first. Uh, One is Jalyn Hess-Verdon. She is the managing partner of the firm Hess-Verdon Associates. She has over 30 years of experience in advising high-net-worth individuals and ultra high net worth individuals uh, regarding complex trust, estate planning, as well as business, real estate, and charitable planning as well. We also have Kurt Ketchum. He's a partner at Hess Verdon and Associates whose practice focuses on advising clients regarding advanced trust and estate planning strategies. He is also responsible for advising the firm's business owner clients regarding all aspects of their closely held businesses, including the structure ongoing maintenance, compliance, private transactions, and succession planning. Now, together with the firm's high net worth and alternate high net worth clients, uh, they work together to customize and implement advanced tax planning strategies, helping clients to grow, transfer their assets in a tax-efficient manner so they can build a lasting legacy for future generations and their charitable endeavors. So I'd like to welcome Jalyn Hesfordon and Kurt Ketchum. Thank you for being here. Hey,
4: Justin. Nice to be here, Justin. Thank you.
2: The first thing I want to talk about are charitable remainder trusts. I've studied a bit about them. Obviously, you have a lot more uh, knowledge and and experience with them. Why don't you tell our audience what a charitable remainder trust is exactly?
1: Sure. So, when we talk about charitable remainder trusts, I'm so glad you differentiated that from what most people are thinking of as a living trust or a family trust. This is a very special type of trust. And it is designed to go ahead and set up two components. It's a permanent trust that's set up for the client to be the income recipient, they're called. So that way, whatever assets are put into that trust, they still retain and receive the annual income. But when they're gone or at the term of the trust, the, whatever's left and remaining in the trust ends up going to charity. So when you look at this type of trust, it's very different than others because of those two main components and it is something that's permanent, and it's done for some very specific reasons. And you've probably heard too, Justin. There's the charitable remainder annuity trust versus the charitable remainder unit trust.
2: And, very and what, what are the differences?
1: Yeah. So that's really going to focus on the income stream that's going to the recipient. A charitable remainder unit, uh, charitable remainder annuity trust is sometimes called a CRAT, a C R A T. And it has nothing to do with annuities, nothing to do with insurance. It just means that the income stream to the client, who's the income beneficiary, it's going to be a fixed figure so they can count on that rain or shine no matter how the portfolio goes. Very different from what's called a charitable remainder unit trust or a CRUT or a CRUT. That's something where the income is going to vary every year based on the uh, portfolio's performance. So you can see those are very distinct types of trust depending on the income payout to the client.
2: That makes sense. So one's a little more uh, variable and the other one's uh, fixed. To me it kind of sounds a lot like an IRA where you aren't actually taxed until you take some of that money out, correct?
1: Yes, it's very similar to that compounding effect Mm -hmm. or how it can grow tax-free. And then the income that you take out, you were going to take it out anyway if you were already just selling something and you're going to reinvest it and you're going to live off the income or draw Mm -hmm. on the income. Mm -hmm. The income is still taxable to the income recipient, but not the growth in that portfolio. So that's a really good analogy.
2: And don't you get a write-off too right away? Uh, Obviously, that varies based on the amount and and actuary assumptions and stuff like that. But don't you get a write-off right away?
1: Yes, one of the benefits is instead of just having it out of your estate and benefiting charities down the road, just thinking for the future effect, the year you create the CRT and you transfer assets into it, the Internal Revenue Code also provides a formula to determine what portion of that can you claim as a charitable deduction on your tax return that year.
2: Wow. So not only do you defer your your taxes on the whatever that appreciated asset is, but you get uh, some tax benefit right away, which is which is pretty nice now isn't typically for small assets, right? So there's a minimum amount of value that's needed to make a CRT make sense, right? So what is that minimum value?
4: So from a very general standpoint, we typically see the range from about 300000 to about $500,000 is the range, the starting range that really makes sense for a CRT. But in reality, it does rely a lot on factors that are specific to each individual client, including their age, their desired level of income, and also the nature of the assets and how they plan to invest the assets. But the important piece is that just that the value of the, of the assets are significant enough to justify the formation costs and ongoing maintenance of the CRT.
2: Now, what kind of assets are your clients typically putting inside a CRT, and can you put multiple assets in the same CRT?
4: You know, the key factor for most CRTs is appreciated assets, right? So, the most common asset we typically see is unencumbered real estate, Mm -hmm. but most forms of appreciated assets can work well in a CRT, including stocks and other securities, cryptocurrencies, some forms of closely held business interests. They all can work really well in CRTs. Regarding a question about whether they can hold multiple assets, that's kind of a, a multi-phase answer. So if you are funding multiple assets at the beginning of the trust, the formation of the trust, generally the answer is yes. So if you have multiple different stocks you want to put in the same CRT, generally that works. The question to whether you can add additional assets after formation is different. For a CRAT or a CRAT, Actually, you're prohibited from making future contributions. So whatever you put in the trust at the opening is what's in the trust for the life of the trust. For a unit trust or a CRUT, technically you're allowed to contribute assets in the future, but generally it's discouraged because there are a lot of initial requirements and testing that has to go through for a CRT to be approved. And when you add additional assets down the line, it can dramatically change those calculations and take a trust that did qualify as a CRT, and disqualify it. So mm. while it can be done, it's generally discouraged.
2: Got it. So ideally you'd want to have a large plan with, uh, if you have multiple assets. I'm thinking of somebody who maybe they've invested in real estate throughout the years and with interest going down and property prices going up, maybe they're, they're approaching retirement or in retirement, they don't want to be landlords anymore and they have multiple properties. Could they take all of those properties, maybe they have seven, eight, 10 different properties, put them all in one trust, sell them all and then now live off the income from those properties?
4: Yes, as long as the key factor is that it's all done at the same time, right? Yeah. So, especially with the CRAT, but really with both kinds of trusts, right? It's really important the value of, of the assets going into the trust. So if, mm-hmm. they're, if they're separated by, you know, six months, it doesn't really work. If. Got it the assets are all able to go in the trust simultaneously and then you know be sold you know within relative short order and, and reinvested, then that can work well.
2: We talked about there's minimums because there's costs to set it up that uh, is not cheap, but also ongoing maintenance costs. So what is that typically per year, the ongoing maintenance cost for a CRT?
1: So the nice thing is CRTs are not maintenance heavy. Mm. Uh, what's critical is that you have to have a good CPA. Mm-hmm. CPA can go ahead and do the return, the, the tax return for the um, CRT every year. If you want to be your own trustee, you can. If you want to hire a professional trustee, you can. What we definitely recommend to clients, though, if they're their own trustee especially, is that we just have an annual meeting, get your team on the phone, get a Zoom meeting, just get together once a year and say, all right, are we following the restrictions and the rules and the way this was set up? Is everything working according to plan? And, hey, how's that portfolio going? Because is it really being maximized or optimized for what the goals were for the client, the income recipient, and eventually for the charity who you're going to really help with any remainder.
2: Now, what would you say is the biggest drawback or downside to uh, CRTs in general?
1: I think it's less of drawbacks or
4: downsides. It's really more misconceptions and lack of knowledge of CRTs. So right now, you know, we, we get a lot of people calling into our office asking to set up a CRT because they've heard they're a great way to defer taxes. Right, so they focus. Great, I have this big asset; I can sell it, pay no capital gains, and it's great. But a lot of people don't realize or don't take into account the restrictions and the requirements that come with a CRT. Right, so for example, the way CRTs have to be set up is at the formation of the trust, you have to state somewhere between five and fifty percent of the trust income of the value of the trust is going to be distributed out each year, and that's at the beginning. Also, there's tests required that says a minimum of 10% of the value of the trust must go to charity, right? And they have actuarial tables and formulas to determine when the trust is formed to see if it matches match that test. But because of those two, a CRT is not an instrument where you can go and spend the money how you want, buy houses. That's not what it's meant for. It's meant to provide the settlor with an income stream for life, right, whether they want the fixed or variable, but an income stream for life, and then the remainder to charity. Also, the other big one that a lot of people don't focus on is, again, that point that the remainder must go to charity. If you have assets that you want to leave to your children or grandchildren or future generations, you know, a CRT isn't going to work. And there are some techniques that we can use to help with that, right? So, for example, sometimes what we'll do if it works for a client is we'll have them set up a life insurance policy that's funded, with a portion of the income they're drawing from the CRT. Mm -hmm. And that way they're able to build an estate for their future generations with a life insurance policy while also taking advantage of the charitable benefits of the CRT itself. So
2: that income can go pay for, say, a term life insurance policy. So when you do die, that, yeah, maybe the asset doesn't transfer, but there's a million-dollar insurance policy on you for when you do die, and that goes to the the next generation or whoever you want to earmark that that dollar amount for, correct?
1: That's right, Justin, because one of the things we look for is that, remember that increased income stream? Mm -hmm. You're doing so well because you've got the full proceeds to invest, why not take a portion of that if the mm-hmm. client's insurable, and then get a policy that's separate, not part of this trust at all, and that goes into a life insurance trust, so that's out of the estate as well, and then your family has what's kind of a gift replacement, mm-hmm. um, and it works in a tremendous way if the client's insurable.
2: That makes sense, and, and you can even, uh, I'm imagining, potentially even insure yourself for more than what that value was, right? And the insurance company payout out for more of that, that initial value, Correct.
4: Yeah, sure. You know, as long as, you know, the insurance company sees you have a, you know, insurable interest in that mm-hmm. amount and the, uh, mm-hmm. uh, income can cover the premiums for insurance. Absolutely.
2: To me, that's what kind of woke me up to, wow, this is a really interesting uh, vehicle that, that people can use and accomplish a lot of different types of goals. Now, what other types of trusts are you commonly using w- with clients for tax planning purposes? I know there's your, there's your standard living trust. Are there, are there any other kind of unique things that you're, you're doing with clients that uh, is, is common for your, your clients?
1: One you mentioned already, and that is an ILIT, I-L-I-T an irrevocable life insurance trust. That works so well, even if you don't have a CRT. If you have any life insurance in your portfolio, this is the time under the current tax exemptions that we have to move those policies into an insurance trust so they're out of everyone's estate, and it works beautifully to have those funds available for liquidity or for long-term planning. So anyone with life insurance should really consider an insurance trust as a given, regardless of the size of the estate. It's something that just smart planning, And then we also look, if the client is philanthropic, then why not look at donor-advised funds? They have some of the same benefits that we've been talking about, but they have a different application. And then there are some clients that have a million or more in assets that they look and say, hmm, maybe they should actually be creating a family foundation. A family foundation can be the charitable beneficiary of the Charitable Remainder Trust. Mm. So the larger the amount going into the CRT, we want to take a second look and see what they benefit from a charitable foundation that's a private family foundation. Now, those are just some of the obvious ones. I think with your kind of a podcast, you could go on for a couple of hours on irrevocable trusts that are available for children and grandchildren. We advise clients please do not buy a house in the child's name. Mm. If the child, and we're talking adult children. If they were to get into a divorce, lawsuit, or any kind of problems, they're going to lose it. If they'd had it in an irrevocable trust for that child or grandchild, now you gave them a great gift, but you gave them all of this protection around it, and it's even set up for their kids, and they don't have to worry about having a separate trust for that. So there are irrevocable trusts that can be utilized in so many ways, And even fun ones like IGITS. I D G T Dustin, you could have a podcast just on (laughs) idits. So intensely defective grantor trusts. And then we can't forget LLCs, limited liability companies and partnerships. Those are actually really important for clients that either own businesses or own real estate. No matter what state they're in, those entities are good for income tax planning and excellent for estate tax planning. So those are just a few.
2: Great well, uh, I appreciate all of that, and theres I'm sure, like you said, there's a lot of a lot of potential avenues to go d- down, and maybe one day we'll have you on again and and go down one of those uh, those, those roads and and explain those in more detail, kind of like we did with uh, CRTs today so once again, Jalin. Kurt, I appreciate you coming on, explaining this to my audience. I'm sure it's going to benefit a lot of those out there, especially those that have, like you like you said, uh, appreciated real estate, maybe crypto, maybe uh, investable um, uh, stocks and bonds, things like that. And uh, it will it'll help a lot of people. So thanks again for coming on, and uh, we'll have you on again soon.
1: Well, we're glad to help and glad to help you with your clients. You're giving them really good advice to the public, and we really appreciate you getting that information out to them.
4: Yeah, thanks a lot, Justin. It's great being here.
0: The Invest Talk Voice Bank never closes. I Have a question for you about Amazon? So your questions keep coming.
2: Question
0: about PE ratios. And that's okay because Steve Peasley and Justin Klein specialize in unbiased guidance.
2: If I'm looking at a dividend company, I'm looking for consistency of earnings and dividends. Your standard daily chart typically goes back one year.
0: Steve and Justin are fearless, so don't forget to call Invest Talk. 888 99 chart.
2: Now we're heading into our last break of this podcast. And on the other side, I'll return to answer your questions here on Invest Talk. So don't hesitate to reach out. Give us a call. 888 99 chart.
0: Your objective is to work hard, plan well, and achieve financial freedom, right? You're in luck. Because Justin Klein is here now, ready to take your finance and investment questions. Call 888-99-CHART.
1: Hello, Invest Talk. John from Texas. Appreciate what y'all do. Uh, Question on REITs and interest rates. So if we're in an environment that perhaps interest rates are going to rise, I've heard you say maybe you do like the REIT space, but to my understanding, I thought rising interest rates were bad for REITs. So maybe if you could explain that, how maybe going to be okay in a rising rate environment, and also I've got two reads I'm looking at. One's in the industrial space as well, and the other one is in a kind of a life science technology approach in terms of their target market. So maybe one of those you prefer over the other. Let me know. Appreciate what y'all do, and I'll uh, look forward to the answer. Thanks. All. Bye.
2: Well, the latter part, I like industrial. Over-the-life science, Uh, there's a lot of correlation to biotechs, and biotechs as of late have had a a lot of money to spend in R&D, and you you have potential regulation in that space that I think uh, there's a risk there uh, of of having lower drug prices and therefore less money for uh, R&D. So that's a risk. It's not necessarily something I foresee for sure, but definitely a risk. With industrial space, I think it definitely has a lot more room to go. To go, uh, And there's just a, a more consistency with that type of business. So I would go with the industrial space. Now, when it comes to interest rates and REITs, that's absolutely true. Higher interest rates are typically bad for REITs. And you've seen that as of late with higher interest rates. REITs prices, the IYR, let me pull that up here real quick, that has gone from... Beginning of the year around 117, now we're at 104 because of those uh, higher rates. So, REITs are kind of bond proxies in a way, and because people are looking for that that yield, that dividend yield coming from from the REITs. And so, when bond prices or bond prices go down, yields go up. That is more competition for bond proxies like REITs. So, yes, higher rates are typically bad for REITs in the short term. Now. Longer term, inflation is actually good for REITs because the value of those REITs uh, of, of the assets, excuse, underlying properties, they go up. In addition to people, businesses, they have more money nominally, and those REIT uh, landlords can raise their rents over time as well. So it, it all depends a lot of it depends on how what's the what's the, the give and take between higher rates and, uh, and, and and rents. If you have negative real yields, which you do now, REITs are going to do still fairly well because what happens is, higher the the inflation rate's going to be higher than those uh those borrowing costs the the inflation or the uh, the interest rates and therefore they'll be able to raise the rents more than maybe their cost of capital is going up or things like that so longer term as long as inflation remains relatively robust which you think it is that means the underlying assets are going to have go up in value and so over the long term REITs are good in that type of environment. So hope that gives you a pretty good explanation there. Now, speaking of inflation, let's touch a bit on who's getting hurt the most. Now, this is a study coming from, I believe it was Wells Fargo, and some of their economists looking at U.S. households on average. They're paying an extra $276 a month above last year's levels. And the Labor Department came out today, inflation accelerated 7.5%. But certain parts of the economy, or, or, or uh, demographics of the economy, are doing are being impacted more. So, for example, middle class households they're squeezed the most. Prices up six point seven percent. On average, in December, uh, the the headline inflation was uh, 6.7. Based on their calculation, inflation was about 6.5. So middle-class households, they felt 6.7%, mainly because they spend a lot on things that have gone up in value uh, or uh, in price, which is gasoline and used cars. So if you are in the, the lower the the lower class, I guess you could say, uh, low-income earners, just 72% of those households owned or leased a vehicle in 2020 compared to 90% overall. So if you are in the lower quadrant, you weren't hit as bad on the uh, gasoline and car department. Higher earners, they eat out a lot and they buy new cars, and the inflation there wasn't quite as strong as those used cars and, and, and other things. Uh, from what comes to the age group, 35 to 44-year-olds, they were hurt the most, 6.9% inflation for them in 2021. That's higher than any age group. Older people, 65 and up, they experienced the lowest because they most of their spending goes to healthcare, 16% versus the average of 4%, and healthcare only rose 2.5% last year. So, that was an interesting little uh, breakdown of who got hurt the most on average within our economy due to inflation. Now, I'm Justin Klein. This completes another Invest Talk program. Steve Peasley and I thank you for listening. We encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads, which you can find anytime over at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. And be sure to rate and review. It is official. We have now surpassed 38.5 million podcast downloads thanks to you, and we appreciate it. Independent thinking, shared success. This is best Good night. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue
3: inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them specifically. Nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell securities.